Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're going to ask the question, what would happen if you took a boring real estate sector like self-storage and you applied a consistent and checklist-driven approach over a significant period of time? And to answer that question, I have Ryan Gibson, who is president and CIO of Spartan Investment Group. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate you having me on to talk about the most boring thing we can talk about. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, self storage is, it's honestly not boring. Actually, hosting this show, I get to talk with so many alt sponsors and family office executives and RIAs. And I'd say self storage, multifamily, and industrial seem like the three sectors. Anytime you mention those sectors, it like gets people's attention. So, it's funny, self-storage, like it's, it's kind of like having a, a moment. Um, it, how did you fall into this sector? Did you choose it because of its characteristics or did you just fall into it by accident? I invested as an LP in somebody else's self-storage development deal. And I learned as much as I could about it through that operator. And then my business partner and I decided to just completely pivot away from residential development and just do 100% self-storage based on really the three E's, easy to own, easy to evict, easy to maintain. So, yeah. So so the, instead of the three T's, toilets, tenants, and trash, you still have tenants, right? I guess you you have a little bit of trash, but you can just, you can send the crew there and empty out a unit and then 30 minutes later, you're done, right? Yeah. I, you know, one thing that it's kind of funny, one person asked me, you know, why don't you have a dumpster on the pro property? And I was like, because people will use it. Yeah. Um, so we don't, we don't uh, typically have to deal with that sometimes on takeovers when we buy a really rundown, nasty, neglected facility, there might be 30, 40 dumpsters coming in to uh, clear out all that trash. But really the, um, the nice thing about self-storage is we don't have, you know, I think we have about 25,000 units and maybe about 20 toilets total across the whole portfolio. So one of the really nice benefits is uh, we don't have those plumbing expenditures and a lot of the CapEx that these other investments have. Right. I guess you just have to make sure your CEO doesn't drink three cups of coffee before doing the site visits, right? <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's let's zoom out. So Spartan Investment Group, uh, you mentioned number of units, and I know you're a pretty big operation. So do you have multiple funds or is it all in, in one big fund? Um, how is your company structured? Yeah. So we are the 40th largest owner and operator of self-storage in the United States. And the way we've structured our deals in the past is we've done single asset syndications, but now we're doing a fund. So we just did our first fund, Spartan Storage Fund One. And the way that people can invest with us are, is through the fund. And then we go out and identify value add self-storage facilities in the United States. Our fund is kind of um, at its uh, first fund is kind of at the tail end. We set up a, a fund and we have the all the assets identified and we're closing the last eight properties inside of that fund. But we're buying a typical 
mom and pop single owner or maybe a portfolio owner of, of self-storage facilities. And we look for very specific market demographics, 2% population growth, usually six-figure income, household growth. And then the facility has some type of potential for increasing market rents to what the market is currently commanding for that quality of the asset. Um, or we can expand that facility and we use our in-house construction team to add on additional units in a market that's underserved by self-storage. So would you call that like light value add? I mean, you're not buying a dump, but you're buying you're buying a business where there's some low-hanging fruit, essentially. Sometimes they're really nasty and and sometimes oh. they're multi-story glass, really nice class A facilities and everything in between. So I would say we we stretch the curve of core plus to uh, opportunistic um, and value add. So I, I think we're we're really kind of um, hitting the high notes. I, you know, we're not buying a downtown, you know, eight-story building in LA, but we're likely to buy a multi-story facility in a county or, or city like Bonita Springs, Florida, okay. where it's kind of um, not kind of a primary market. It's sort of like a secondary or tertiary market and by definition. And so that's kind of represents the highest class A quality we would buy. And then the lowest quality we would buy is like a bedroom community around uh, DFW Metroplex where it is just completely run down. Doors don't work. Dumpsters need to be hauled in to move out trash. And we need to give the whole property a, a deep facelift. And sometimes portfolios that we purchase will have those and they'll have maybe some more class B plus or A minus facilities mixed in with them. But that's kind of our sweet spot that we play in. But what I love, the facilities that we love that I like the most are those that are very highly occupied because I think what you have to realize in the storage business is that 70% of these properties are owned by mom and pop operators and mm -hmm. they have one focus, occupancy, physical occupancy. There is no revenue growth. It's just, I want to be full with a wait list. I have a low cost basis in the property and I'm cash flowing and I don't want to do any work. So people kind of try to achieve that. And we mm -hmm. love buying those because they're typically in markets where uh, the competitor rates have really taken off and that owner hasn't focused on raising their rents to where the market is. So we can buy a property and increase collections 20 to 30% in the first year, just bringing the, the value up to market. So we like identifying those, uh, those types of assets. And then we love it when they have expansion potential, we can build additional units uh, so that we can increase the NOI that way and thereby increase the overall um, value of the property. So then you do build sometimes, you acquire an asset and you build it out. Um, so so why, why buy an existing asset versus building? Is it just a way to cut the risk because you already have that rent roll? You already have tenants? No, it's, Is it faster? Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I think buy versus build. Uh, sometimes properties just don't have that option. And that's okay. Sometimes the opportunities uh, to increase the number of units is fantastic because the market is really well underserved. And so we can, we can buy. So I, I would say we build about a half a million to a million square feet of self-storage every year. Wow. And that's okay. through, yeah, that's through, you know, ground up facilities and then the facilities that we buy and add on to. So we're very active. We, right now, I, I would say uh, we have two projects uh, going vertical in Texas right now. One's 54,000 square feet. Uh, the other we wrapped up last year was 40,000 square feet. And then we have projects going on in Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, 
Uh, we just finished a 50,000 square foot ground up just outside of the Portland MSA. And, um, you know, so we're built, we're building, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of square feet, uh, per year. And, but most of those, uh, facilities that we purchase do exist and have some type of expansion potential or deep value add through increasing rates to market. And do you have, uh, like an in-house brand then that these are branded. So are these all Spartan self storage or do they keep the old sign of, of Billy Bob's <laughs> storage uh, owned and operated by Spartan investment group? Yeah. I would say that's one of the strong benefits that we have is that we do have our own brand mm -hmm. and we do brand these under what's called free up storage national brand. Okay. And we've done property management since we started the company in 2013, but we've recently rebranded our a national brand of free up storage. We think that provides a lot of value to our investors and to the potential future exit that we have and our optionality in selling because we can sell these and be the operator and be the branded company that continues to operate these. If we do like an institutional equity recap, mm -hmm. or you know, we can uh, sell the property with our third party management in place if it's even if it's a mom and pop. And so the branding really helps with SEO and recognition. And just efficiencies when you roll out multiple store locations like that. Yeah, and so this is a really you mentioned SEO, and um, you know I, I got my start as a marketing guy with, and very familiar with search engine optimization and lead generation, and kind of ended up in finance by accident. But that's a really interesting aspect to me. Some of these real estate sectors, self storage is one. Definitely, hospitality is another where marketing can enhance value so much it can enhance noi and, and therefore you know so do you look at self-storage is this an operating business that happens to be involved with real estate or is this a real estate business that happens to own an operating business on you know all of the assets that you own which is, which is it primarily? Yeah, so undoubtedly we have a piece of property and we have you know real estate, right? We have a, a piece of real estate that generates NOI through leases and through tenants and occupancy, and that has a, a applicability of a cap rate to derive the value. So a hundred percent, we have we're in the real estate business. What's different is we're very much kind of like retail, where if you're thinking about opening up a subway or a, a national uh, retail chain, you're going to have research that goes into the best places to place a location and the demand right. that you're expected to get and your competition that's in the market, right? So self-storage is very much a retail business from that standpoint is you've got to have, you've got to be well-marketed, you got to be well-branded, and you have to pick locations that are underserved where you can really hit it out of the park. And that's probably the number one most important thing in self-storage. And so to optimize revenue, we want to control the whole value chain through our operations and our marketing and branding. And so we're able to do that with free up storage and we're able to identify the markets that are underserved so that we can figure out where to put these locations and have the most success uh, in a market. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to go back to the the idea of this roll up. So, do you mind sharing how much assets under management? Absolutely, we have about right now. Yeah, we have about a half a billion, and by the end of the year, we'll be close to seven fifty. And and next year, we hope to have a billion of self storage under management. 
Uh, that, that makes up about three and a half million square feet uh, spread across 13 states. We have about 25,000 units uh, comprised of mostly self-storage again, but there's some RV parking and storage in there. There's some retail and office that sort of come with the portfolios that we purchase. Mm-hmm. And you know that that reach really has uh, triggered the need for a national brand and, and kind of our own uh, our own uh, value chain. Uh, we also do the construction of these facilities as well, so we handle all the construction in house. Okay, so I think I heard seven hundred and fifty million right now, but but growing very quickly. Is that uh, equity under management, or is that total value of the assets? Value of the assets. Yeah, value of the assets. Okay, yep. so. It's really interesting to me, and this was like a decade ago, I was involved with a startup um, and it was kind of, uh, you'd almost call it virtual real estate. We were acquiring assets that generated leads and we were kind of creating a a, a roll-up, I guess. So it was essentially a roll-up strategy where institutional buyers would be interested in these assets, but only once they reached a certain size and a certain scale. And so that was a decade or longer, totally different world. But just the theory of a roll-up makes so much sense to me because there's different pockets of the market and especially the real estate market. When you think about institutional buyers, you think about CalPERS and pension funds and sovereign wealth funds, and it's like they go shopping and if it's if it's not whatever, 100 million or 250 million bucks, they don't even look at it. And really they want to acquire assets a billion dollars at a time, right? Sure. So- is that essentially the plan to roll these assets up into a certain size? And then does the multiple then, is it is it like multiple arbitrage where, where larger buyers will pay that premium to get this scaled out collection of assets? Is that the plan? And if so, what, what does that look like, you know, five years in the future? Who's the buyer at that size or, or is it an IPO? I'm, I'm asking you a million questions. So t- tell <laughs> me about asking- the roll up. You're asking a lot of questions and it's probably the best question you can ask any operator, which is what is your exit strategy, right? Mm-hmm. For, for each individual investment or the fund or all of these assets combined. And when I think about exit strategy, there's one word that comes to mind and that's having that's optionality. Mm-hmm. And so I think any operator that sets out with a singular exit strategy, that's, this is what we're going to do. This is exactly what we're going to do is, is set up for potential failure, especially in a market where there's rising interest rates, there's potentially expanding cap rates, there's very bad predictions of where the uh, yield curve is going to go by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And so having multiple exit strategies is probably the most important thing you can do. But to validate what you said, absolutely sovereign wealth funds, publicly traded REITs, non-publicly traded REITs, other big private equity that has entered the space, such as Blackstone, who runs the Simply Self Storage brand now, have... uh, been in a position to want to buy a very large collection of assets in one transaction, and they're willing to pay a compressed cap rate to do so, thereby operators who have big, well-positioned portfolios are set up for more success than those that are buying just kind of one-off deals here and there. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is when you look at a market, for example, we're in Chattanooga, we have three facilities there, we're adding a fourth. And in that market, public storage doesn't want to go buy one property in a middle of nowhere market, right? Or a smaller tertiary market. They right. want scale in that market. You know, they want to dedicate a 
regional or a district and have an area manager and really kind of be efficient with payroll. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at building, we're looking at really strong portfolio composition within our storage assets. And if you look at our map of facilities, you can see we have 30 surrounding the greater DFW Metroplex. We have 16 assets surrounding the greater Atlanta region. Uh, we have a handful in, in uh, Chattanooga. And that not only allows us the economies of scale and the efficiencies within those markets, but it also positions us for a better exit strategy. Now, having said that, we have facilities that we sell to individual owners or to larger groups uh, like Spartan Investment Group. Uh, we're going through the sale of a couple of assets that way right now that just don't meet our portfolio composition and don't have a and we don't have any intention of going deeper in those markets. Uh, so we have multiple exit strategies, and I think that's really important uh, for investors to consider. And you know, target hold periods are just that four to six years is our target hold period. And really, when people say you're that's your plan to sell, I think really the thinking should be that's our plan for when we want to be recapitalized by. And that could be the sale, that could be a refinance, that could be an institutional equity group that comes in and recaps our equity. Sure. That could be a number of different things. But at the end of the day, we're going to do what's best for our investors to perform at the best level in the in the shortest period of time, right? So uh, we really want, yeah, we really want to uh, be positioned for multiple exit strategies, which we've done. Is an IPO in the realm of possibility, or is that not an option <laughs> that you even want to consider? Absolutely. It's absolutely a, a, a consideration. It's not what we're planning, but it mm -hmm. absolutely could be something that we do in the future. And uh, if, the, if it makes sense, we could, uh, we could go that way. A lot of groups do. So, Well, let's talk about if it makes sense, because one thing that I've covered on the show is there's a, a trend, especially in 2022, um, and, and this is something that I asked Michael Episcope about, um, the co-CEO of Origin Investments, about valuations. And I'd sort of memorized this internal script that publicly traded REITs tended to be overvalued, right? Because, you know, people want liquidity and so they'll kind of overpay for, for that liquidity. Um, and, and he really pushed back, Michael, to his credit. And and by the way, believe him, don't believe me, especially in, in 2022, that right now, so many publicly traded REITs are trading at heavy discounts just because the market is in a slump. Um, number one, do you, do you think that that's, I don't want to say permanent, but do you think that that could last for, for the foreseeable future? And, and then secondly, if so, does it even make sense? To IPO at that point? I mean, if if Mr. Market is going to give you a worse valuation than what your internal valuation, it's like, why? why? I'd, I'd rather just hold these assets. Yeah. So that's a great question. I think, you know, the way that I'd answer that is, is how we're responding to it. Because when a publicly traded REIT, people call their, their equity out and they use that liquidity that takes away their buying power and that really has presented a lot of opportunities for us this quarter to buy some assets where the REITs would be competing for those assets but right now they're sort of hitting the snooze button because of cash mm. and so we we see a tremendous opportunity there but i think in general you know i that's not our number one strategy to ipo mm -hmm. um why and, is that Dumb um question why why no, is that a worse option yeah so i i look at our vision you know, our vision at Spartan Investment Group is to provide the best opportunities for both 
our team. Uh, what it, 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 that's to be personal and professional. And our vision is to serve our people and our team members. And so we want to maintain that control. I mean, we were voted best places to work. We've been on Inc. 500 the last three years in a row. We have tremendous growth. We have a great team in place. And I think what we want to do is, you know, when Scott and I originally founded the company, we wanted to have a place where people wanted to come grow and work and be be entrepreneurial in a very structured environment. And, mm-hmm. you know, going public, we lose that, you know, and, and I, I don't, it, I don't know. know. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds like so soft, but I know as an entrepreneur, as a, as a co-founder, it is anything but, I mean, the, the company, cause it's like anybody, you raise some capital, anybody can go out and buy self-storage assets and operate them. Right. And I'm not sure. saying they, they'd all perform the same, but like anybody can do that. So really, what makes Spartan Spartan or what makes what makes you you is your unique DNA, your unique company culture, your unique values, way of doing things, philosophy. Could you talk a little bit about that company culture? I mean, what is it that you want to cultivate? You mentioned being entrepreneurial. That's actually pretty hard to pull off for a lot of institutions and corporations. But talk talk about your company culture. Yeah. So I, I think we have a strong focus on our mission, which is to improve lives through real estate. And we are a very big values-driven organization. So when it comes to values, it's not something that we just throw up on the wall and, and mm-hmm. talk about. Uh, we Every week we have a meeting and we specifically have the whole team, the whole company uh, talk about how they've served our mission this week and how they've in- implemented the values. Um, and we say our values are, inve- are defined by our grit. And GRIT at Spartan is an acronym that actually has two Ts, and that stands for growth, respect, integrity, tenacity, and transparency. And those are values that we stand behind and adhere to. And you know, all of our team members have their own vision board uh, where we can see where our employees want to go, want to get to. Uh, and we're very transparent with uh, folks. We have weekly one-on-ones with our team. And we're just a, we're a fun company to work for, but we also work really hard. And so we give our employees a lot of freedom and responsibility to make decisions, to learn, to fail, to grow. And we even celebrate our mistakes. So we have a weekly call every week, for example, and we have a section of the call that says, hey, who wants to talk about how they failed this week? And we, we openly embrace that because um, you know, while we don't want people to make the same mistakes or be negligent, we realize that people aren't always going to be perfect and we have to foster an environment where we're focused on improvement, process improvement. And how, how can we get better and just kind of recognizing those mistakes? Yeah. Uh, learning opportunities, right? Um, yeah. I, I think w- what's the Japanese word? I'm sure I'll butcher the pronunciation Kaizen or something, which is that idea of continuous process improvement. And honestly, it it is kind of anti-corporate, just that entrepreneurial yeah. ethos of, of, of doing that. Um, okay. So I want to talk about going back to the roll-up thing is I, I just love roll. I do. I mean, it's just, it's so simple. We were talking um, before we clicked the record button a little bit about there's this uh, weightlifting strength training program. I've never done it, by the way. I think I've probably done similar programs. It's <laughs> called boring, but big. And I think it's like you, you squat, you bench press and you deadlift and it's really hard work and you do it consistently three, you know, three to five times whatever. It's that type of program. It's called boring, but big. And I just love that concept of like, hey, we know what we're good at and we're going to make it scalable 
and repeatable. And then the thing that you mentioned, the, the continuous improvement aspect, if you get 1% better every week, at the end of the week, you're not going to notice a big difference, right? But if you get 1% better at your process every week, at the end of a year, you're going to notice a big difference. The end big of three, three years or five years, you're going to be so far ahead of competitors and you know they're going to look at it like, I don't understand how are they so fast or how can they do this more cost effectively? We're doing the same darn thing because it's this consecutive building of all those little things. So, you know, I, I, I got this from your website. I forget the exact verbiage, but it was something like a checklist driven approach to, to, to what you do. So could you basically give, give me the blueprint so that, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, uh, we share, we share it. Yeah, actually. Yeah. You yeah. know what? Give us, give us yeah, the no, blueprint. How does that change things? How is that yeah. different? Yeah. Transparency is in our value and, you know, any, any investor or anybody who has got a question about what we do, um, we, we share it. It's, uh, it's not, it's not a problem at all. So I would say that due diligence is an important thing. You're never going to fully uh, mitigate all the risk on an, on an investment, but having a, a process that you follow the same time every time is super important. And we have a 700 plus uh, checklist that we share. It's on our website. If you look at the invest in our values section, it's right below that. You can download it. You can you can see all the things that we go through. And we have a due diligence team that focuses on making sure that those investment criteria are met through financial, physical. So Ryan, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I'm just going to pause right there. I'm thinking yeah. that through. I'm thinking, okay, so if I'm your competitor or I can download that checklist, but sure. it's really in the follow through. It's in a team member who actually does each item in the list right sorry go on yeah and i and i and i encourage our competition to do the same thing you know and the reason why is because sometimes you see people buy stuff and you're like geez uh you know do you realize you've got to do these things and maybe they were willing to pay a higher price not knowing that there was diligence to do that they didn't do and they move forward and then they lose the money and i you know i'd hate to see that happen to anybody so yeah, use it. I think we could all benefit from a little bit more due diligence. And you know that checklist is really important to follow because you can measure its successful execution and, and efficiency because you can see what happens and, and you can have a feedback loop every time you buy a property. Hey, we missed this on the checklist or, or this checklist needs to add these things. That so that checklist know- is, it's like the reflection of the 300 mistakes you've made in your 300 previous acquisitions and Every time Absolutely. you step in a landmine, you're like, oh, record that landmine on right. the checklist. It, yeah, ex- exactly. And, and it's a way to grow kind of institutional knowledge in our company mm-hmm. yeah. and yeah. and just really have a good, a good team. And uh, we're actually refining it quite a bit. Uh, we're doing a lot of big changes uh, to our due diligence checklist and just the kind of the way we roll it all out. And um, you know, it's been great. It's been actually been driven by one of our team members, one of our transaction coordinators uh, who's been at the forefront of all this. So I'm excited to see where it goes and what the team has really learned, you know, for the last couple of years and and what they're going to do with the due diligence uh, program. We were just, as executives, we were just briefed on um, some ideas and I was really excited about where the team wanted to take it. Uh, and just, I, I think it's just such an important thing that's overlooked uh, in real estate um, is just doing enough due diligence on, a, on an investment. And we share 
all of our reporting with our investors. So, you know, if you want to see a phase one or environmental or property inspection report or anything that you might look at, you know, that's really important. But I, I think, you know, people try to do all the, their own due diligence on an investment. You know, we, we rolled out our first fund earlier this year and a lot of our original investors from a long time ago were like, ah, I don't like your fund because I like really evaluating every deal you guys do. And my encouragement to them is- They'll sound like the LPs from hell. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, they're great. They're great. I, yeah, but they're, they're, they just, they, they want to look at every single deal. Sure. And, I, and, I, and I totally agree with that. I think they should. I think you should do your due diligence on an investment. But I think as LPs, we have to realize that we cannot do enough due diligence on a singular investment and really pick them because- You've got, uh, rather, I would say, understand the company's due diligence process mm. and, then, and then know that it's consistent and repeatable and then pick an operator who can make good investment selection and do good investment due diligence. I think that's more important than trying to figure out, because here's the reality, you know, as an LP or even as a GP, when you look at an investment, you can't possibly understand every single risk and mitigate every risk. You know, ask yourself as an LP, have you ever asked for a title report or the exceptions on a title report or the title insurance policy? Do you review those things? Because those things can really create a lot of headaches uh, down the road. I mean, most LPs don't even read the PPM, right? right. I mean, <laughs> be, yeah, being but, honest. It, it, exactly. So, you know, that I think, I think it's really important just to understand, you know, the operator's process for due diligence more than it is on that particular investment. Now you got to make sure that they've done their diligence on that investment, but um, I think that's a really important uh, part of it. So, yeah. And I should clarify, I do want to reiterate LPs should <laughs> read those PPMs. Certainly RIA's advisors, family offices should be reading them, but if you're going to be self-directed as an LP, you, you definitely need to be willing to embrace that responsibility. So I'm still, I'm still really intrigued by the idea of the checklist because you know, so many successful businesses, it's really that process knowledge and then scaling it out, right? Because maybe you can, maybe you can own and operate one asset and you've like squeezed every ounce of value that you possibly can, every enhanced revenue stream and bells and whistles. It's another thing entirely to be in that constant cycle of acquisition and value add and stabilization. And so I kind of look at it like, um, it's almost like you're sending in your your elite squad and they're, they're coming in and they're like, we know how to triage this. Um, number one, Billy Bob only took cash. We we got to get the credit card <laughs> credit card yeah, machine right. going ASAP. Right. You know, or I don't even know what the things are because I've never owned or operated self-storage. But let's talk about that, how, how you stabilize. You know, So you've acquired a value-add facility. What happens next? Yeah, so... I think that the first thing you've got to get your arms around is just transition checklist. So when we take a property over, we have to transition it to our revenue management software. We've got to rehire the frontline staff, and then we have to deploy our initial improvements, paints, drive aisles, cameras, security systems, getting everybody switched over to our revenue management platform, things like that. All those things have to go into a transition. So we have a transition team that does that. And then this, I, I, think, that, I think the really important thing Kind of right out of the gates is just to make sure that you can collect revenue, you know. And I think that's a that's a really I know I know it's kind of a funny comment, but 
you know, you got to make <laughs> okay. sure that, you know, you're getting everything set up. So we've got that really dialed in. So I was right about the credit card thing. Is that, yeah, that oh, absolutely. Is key? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's we're a cashless business. So yeah. a lot of mom and pops are cash only. Um, uh -huh. in a lot of cases. So we, that's a big transition item is to get everybody up on our payments. And, you know, it's funny, every mom and pop tells us, you know, oh, they, you know, Johnny really, he's only going to pay cash. And so we're like, okay, well, Johnny's not going to rent here or he's going to pay with a credit card uh -huh. or he's going to get on automatic reoccurring monthly payments. Um, so, and it's, and it's been fine uh, overall. So I think really for us, it's just coming in. And I know this sounds very basic, but it's just holding people to the standard that's in their lease. And the lease in self-storage is one of the most powerful leases in commercial real estate because the second paragraph that you land on in a self-storage lease is that the owner reserves the right to lien the occupant's belongings in the event of non-payment for 30 days. And that allows us to kick a tenant out every 30 to 45 days uh, through the auction process. And we don't have eviction moratoriums or rent control or things like that that you see in multifamily because we're not overseeing somebody's housing. You know, we're not kicking a family out of their homes. We're dealing with grandma's dresser, right? So it's not as important to the masses. Uh, so we're, it's a very, very powerful lease. And, and just to get everybody on the correct lease and everybody held to a standard by our store managers is really the number one priority when we take over. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like basic professionalism, but you know, you can kind of see how, you know, mom and pop businesses and renting units to friends or so, so it sounds like there's a lot of low hanging fruit and just just getting the basics right. And again, back to the boring but big strength training program, you know, sometimes that boring fundamental process. Sure. Well and consistently, boy, can that build value over time. So let, let's talk about the current market because I, I think we're in a very interesting market. And I don't have a crystal ball. I honestly, the more this year goes on, the less certain I am about anything. But I, I want to pick your brain what you're seeing. So we've seen interest rates go up, obviously. First off, how has this affected pricing in the self-storage market? Because it seemed to me last year assets were just priced at an extreme. Would you would you agree with that statement that cap rates were just yeah, anything crazy? Yeah, anything you bought in quarter four last year what is going to be a great investment, in my opinion. Anything that you bought in Q1 or Q2 of last year is going to be phenomenal. Uh, we saw cap rates compress 85 basis points in quarter four and quarter three of last year. Wow. Uh, quarter one, quarter two, we saw the same type of uh, compressing cap rates, increasing prices. We are seeing a couple of investments or bigger portfolios start to retrade based on interest rates. And we're starting to see a little bit of price softening, but rental rates continue to increase. For, so, so for example, I'm sorry. So, so am I hearing that correctly? The the cap rates have barely, they barely expanded at all. They're still pretty much at their all. Is are they pretty much at the all time uh, what's all time the word? low? Na nadir. Yeah, <laughs> is that my technical term? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow. No, cap rates have not moved all that much. Now we have seen some. Price, uh, portfolios kind of swing back around or get mm -hmm. represented to us. And uh, we've, but the competition is still pretty strong at the buying front. And it's really due to the fact that, yeah, interest rates are up, but rental rates are skyrocketing. You know, specifically, mm -hmm. you know, we studied the REIT, the publicly traded REIT data across the, more, the major REITs. And most NOI is up 20% year over year on 20%. the same. 
So that 20%. has to be that basically has to be twenty percent top line growth, just flowing right through to the bottom. Is that I mean right to the bottom? Yep. And so we've seen double digit rental increases in self storage year over year, and we're still experiencing it. We in fact we just raised rents on our portfolio on average twenty five percent across all of our uh, facilities. So you know, um, it, Ryan, this sounds to me almost when I read Barron's, and I always kind of laugh when analysts talk about forward PE. I'm like, what the heck is a forward P? You know, like I, yeah. I just like can't roll my eyes hard <laughs> enough in 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 regards to the stock. But if rents are going up 15, 17% year over year, you almost have to value an asset based on the on the forward year, right? So is that really, I guess, is that kind of how you see value? Because if you just if I'm just looking at it as a static cap rate, it's hard for me to see value in this space. Yeah. So so the REITs are really aggressive and they're very predictive in what they're going to value the the revenue, the market rates to go up. Sure. At Spartan, we we can't play in that game where we're predicting market rents to continue to increase like that. Mm -hmm. the, the space that we really operate in is finding those facilities that are already priced well below the market on their rental rates, on their total collections, and then moving them up to market. We 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 predict very light single digit market rate increases over the course of like a five-year hold. So we'll predict market rate increases to be like three to 7% over a five-year hold. Very, very low. So are you just are you just sort of acquiring assets that like these REITs or maybe larger players aren't willing to acquire because of their location or whatever other Co Correct. Factor? And yeah, just like I said earlier, though, like the one-off stuff, right? They're not, they're not interested in doing the one-off deal in that market, but now all of a sudden we'll have six in that market. And they'll now be interested in, in a bigger buy in that market. And the REITs are slowly coming out into the secondary and tertiary markets where the yield is. And so you're seeing, a, and private equity. So Did you see a light bulb go off? Like I kind of, <laughs> I was like, oh, I get it now. Yeah, I get yeah, where yeah. You guys are finding, but I don't, I still don't necessarily get where the REITs are finding the value, but I get it now with you guys. Well, their cost of capital is so cheap. That's really what's been driving it. Um, and their PE ratio of 80, 90%. I mean, they can buy stuff at a two and a half, three cap and make it work. And so it's really, it, it's an interesting, uh, in interesting space. You know, for us, we've got to get yield for investors, you know, double your money in five years kind of stuff. So we've really got to find um, really good, well-positioned assets. And eventually, you know, we're kind of a medium-sized fish. I wouldn't say a small fish, but we're kind of going to get eaten up by the larger operators from an acquisition standpoint, which is going to be a great exit for us someday uh, when the timing's right. You know, deal by deal, portfolio by portfolio, really positioned for good success in that, in that respect. Got it. So I want to talk a little bit more about the publicly traded REITs. Um, so we've seen, you know, in some sectors, uh, not in self-storage, obviously, but um, was it student housing or, or one of these? It was like the last publicly traded REIT in that sector went private, right? Because it was like, we're, we're tired of trading at a discount. And yep. basically, it's it's there's no reason to go public. There's no reason to be public anymore because there's costs associated with that. Sure. And there's no, there's no arbitrage to be had. Um, so do you see that trend with the publicly traded REITs? Do you think, you know, is it still... You, you basically think there's that arbitrage move for them as long as their PEs are here they can acquire at, at three cap all day long essentially is I, that I I think so yeah and 
you know, we saw we saw that during COVID, we saw the REITs buy billions of self storage um, at low compressed cap rates, and um, I, th- I think we're still going to continue to see that, especially with the the same store revenue growth year over year being in the double digits. I mean, I think the their appetite is going to be very strong for that, and and you know, not as many self storage facilities are being built now because construction costs and timeline delays due to supply chain issues. Are continuing to drive rents because you have a, a shriveling supply in some markets, uh, and you have really underserved areas where you can't really build because the build costs won't justify the rents. But then you start limiting how many facilities are within that given location, and that's what we're seeing in the tertiary markets right now. Is the is our our stores are increasing rents considerably because there's just no competition, and the uh, occupancies are just skyrocketing. Uh, so we're able to really push revenue uh, quite a bit, which again starts attracting the major players because our rent per square foot in smaller markets is going up, and the and the REITs see the value in that. I love the roll up. I, I just I really <laughs> do love the roll up. So what else do you when you're analyzing the publicly traded REITs? What else do you look at that that you know might affect your business? Yeah, great, great question. So what they're doing with payroll and expenses, how they're positioning their customer service strategy. Uh, are they unmanning properties more? Are they going for more automation? What they're forecasting in a given market for rent growth, we, we pay a very close attention to that. Uh, we look at you know trends in occupancy data and economic occupancy data. We track delinquencies. We track a variety of different things. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we, we blog, we kind of collate all that data. We have it on our newsroom, on our website, and we, we blog about it. We talk about it. And then internally, we really pay attention to that because uh, that's really important to us to see. I mean, they're basically the big brother in the industry. We want to know what they're doing so we can kind of adopt and curate our strategy. So you can kind of get the benefits of, of them being public and have, having to be transparent with their data and some of those <laughs> yeah. best practices, essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. And we also mastermind, you know, we, we talk with the publicly traded, non-publicly traded REITs, other operators, um, you know, on a regular basis. And we share information about, you know, share information that we can about where we see the market headed and what rates are doing and what, what our acquisition strategy is. So we're pretty attuned to what's going on just as a, as one of the larger industry players, you know, as a medium-sized company, but um, we like to see what other people are doing and just to kind of learn from it. So, absolutely. got it. Yeah. Hey, could you could you tell us about your capital base? I mean, is it mainly LPs who have made their money in real estate and they like to reinvest in real estate passively, or are there RIAs or wealth advisors who are you know showing uh, their clients your product? Do you raise money from institutional investors at all? Um, yeah. So no, no capital. Yeah, no, no VC, no institutional equity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've uh, steered clear of that for the time being. We have uh, primarily just individual retail investors. Our minimums are 50K. And so I would say 90% of our investors are from that space. We do fund to funds. So LPs organize funds for a, be- for a better uh, price of the shares, mm-hmm. a better ownership in the deals. And I'd probably say 5% of our capital is from that space. And then I'd say the other 5% is kind of a mixed. We have RIAs that um, are maybe smaller shops, um, you know, maybe uh, half a billion or less in under, um, of AUM. And you know, 
handful of RAAs in that group and they'll, they'll send us clients. They'll do their due diligence on us. And then we do really good investor reporting so they can, uh, they can roll us into their, their platform. And so we have uh, RAAs that, that we work with several of those, uh, but primarily the retail investor. And I would say, I, I always say, I joke, we have an avatar. So we have a four kind of four categories. We have the CEO who is, um, you know, a particular demographic uh, for that, that invests. So we have a lot of that. We have, um, we call him ex- exited Eric, which is a person who is an active in real estate, sold a company, sold a tech company, yep. um, you know, super successful. Uh, that's kind of another bucket of our investors. And then we have what I call professional services, Simon, who is um, a doctor, a lawyer, an airline pilot, a anesthesiologist, uh, somebody who's a doctor, somebody who's, you know, high network, uh, high net income or, or high earner and is uh, really kind of interested in learning about real estate and wants to invest in, in passively in syndications. Mm-hmm. And then we have the emerging investor, you know, somebody who is, is risk taker, um, somebody who wants to invest in crypto and kind of the new trends and get really excited about something. So I would probably say those are kind of our four major food groups for retail investors uh, that, we, uh, that we really cater to. So, Got it. No, you know, I love a sponsor who understands retail investors. And by, by the way, I mean, I, I think some LPs will amaze people because, you know, I see sponsors, they'll publish their minimum, minimum investment. So really, you know, any investor, any LP talking to you after that point, you know, okay, that the, they're in that universe. Yeah. And then every once in a while, someone will surprise you by writing a check that's an order of magnitude larger than you ever expected, but you have to be willing to talk about your, you have to be legally able to talk about your product, number one, but then, you know, you have to be willing to kind of market it and exactly what you're doing now, just, just be transparent and not every sponsor gets that. Yeah. And I, and, and, and also that understanding the different avatars is really important. Like for example, our CEO, Charles avatar, Mm -hmm. uh, we really studied who that person is and where they hang out, what they like to do. And it's interesting, right? Some um, like professional services, investors, retail doctors, lawyers, engineers, et cetera. They want the granular detail all the time. They want to hear it every month. They want to hear it on a podcast. They want to, they want to be really engaged and educated in their investment. CEO Charles, he's not going to pay attention or she's not going to pay attention for a year. And then all of a sudden they're going to text you, <laughs> right? And say, what's going on? And then you better respond with a thorough to the point answer. So it's important to kind of understand that dynamic. And so I think you can kind of work more with your investors that way and kind of understand where they're coming from a little bit more when you kind of expect, okay, this is the type of person that is going to want a phone call on a a regular basis and they're going to want to go deep into the weeds. And so I have to be ready for that. You know, my team has to be ready for that. Um, Or this is an investor who's going to check in with me once in a blue moon and just want to know what's up and, and not, they don't want to know every little nook and cranny. They just want to know, is this heading in the right direction or is it not? And I think just hitting them with the truth and hitting them with transparency is really important. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's a really good summary and, and intriguing how you all look at it internally. I mean, from a sponsor point of view, I almost look at it like you have to pick your poison. I mean, if you raise money from institutionals, there's going to be all sorts of, um, <laughs> you know, hooks or, or things that come along with that same deal. If, if you are working with a broker dealer, there's going to be, you know, all sorts of, um, 
pros and cons to that. And same thing, soliciting directly to, to retail investors. So um, it sounds like that that you all are kind of aware of you know ways you can add value with investor relations. And I think that's really overlooked aspect of being a quality sponsor. So on that note, it's and it sounds like you all do a very good job with that. Are there any plans to expand beyond self-storage or do you think that's that's the sector that you're in for life, baby? Not for life, but for the next three years. Uh, it's okay. something that we just want to get down really well and really focus on building the infrastructure correctly so that we can be good stewards of the investments that we have. I don't think we're really ready to move on yet uh, to anything else. Well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or if it's broke, fix it before you move on, right? Yeah, so. there you go. I, either way, either way. A <laughs> little bit of have... both. A little bit of both. There's definitely improvements that we need to make, uh, but there's also some really great things happening. So, yeah. Ryan, I really appreciate your candor and, and transparency and all your insights today. So for our listeners and viewers, where can they go to learn more about Spartan Investment Group and your open offering? Yeah. So spartan-investors.com is our website and our, our open offerings are listed on there. And then if you wanted to get in touch via email, my email is ryan, R-Y-A-N, at spartan-investors.com. Also hit me up on LinkedIn. So. Yeah. Great. And for our listeners, if you want links to all the resources we discussed in today's episode, including a link to that uh, to, to the Spartan Investment Group website, I'll be sure to put that in the show notes at altstb.com slash podcast. Ryan, thanks again for coming on the show today. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate it. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you.